0: Okay, um, this is the fourth, or fourth in the lectures which I've organised through through summer school here at the LSE for 2013. We've reflected uh, on a number of big issues. I, I, I kicked, the co- kicked the series off, if you like, with the debate with Professor Danny Kwar on whether or not power is shifting from the west to the east, from the transatlantic area, from the west to Asia and particularly to China. We had then... Uh, magnificent speech by our director Craig Calhoun, I've got to say it's magnificent because he's my boss, uh, on social movements in the, in the USA when he showed the great importance of social movements. Last week we had uh, Lord Megnad Desai talking on the, uh, the crisis of 2008, its consequences and how to get out of it. And this evening I'm actually delighted to uh, welcome and to introduce to you uh, Robert Cooper, who works with me in the centre I help run called Ideas and who has a very long and distinguished uh, career. Educated at Oxford, joined the Foreign Office in 1970. He worked in a number of senior positions in Tokyo and then the capital of West Germany, Bonn. Between 1989 and 1993, he was Head of Policy Planning. And in 2002, he moved over, so to speak, to work on European Union issues with particular relationship with and, and under the leadership of Xavier Solana. Um, and in 2000, he became the steer- on the Steering Committee of the European uh, Uni- uh, uh, Action Service Committee, uh, developing in a sense the, the development of a new foreign policy for Europe. Um, though formally, I think, retired, he retains the role as a councillor with the European Union, particularly Kathy Ashton, uh, with a particular interest in uh, Burma, uh, Myanmar. Uh, Apart from a distinguished diplomatic career, uh, Robert is also the author of two major books, uh, The Postmodern State and World Order in the year 2000, and then The Breaking of Nations in 2003. And again, he's doing some wonderful work with us over in in Ideas. He's going to speak tonight, and I can't think of a better speaker to speak, on the straightforward problem, Europe on the Brink, from crisis to collapse. Let me just say very quickly, Bob has to go at 6.30 to get... To, uh, to a concert, a rather important one this evening because his wife is playing, so he has to leave on the dot at 6.30. So Bob will be speaking for about 25 minutes, a kind of short, sharp, uh, breathtaking uh, uh, introduction, and then we're going to move to questions and answers for the next 40. I wonder if you can give Sir Robert Cooper a very warm welcome, please.
1: Here. It's got a picture. Yes, you look at yourself. I know, yes, it's, even raised, even raised it's quite time.
0: disconcerting, uh, yeah. Yeah. unless you're an egomaniac like me. Yeah.
1: Well, it, the title of the lecture says Crisis or Collapse. <laughs> and uh, I don't know about collapse, but uh, actually, crisis is a way of life if you're in government. Um, and if you, if you look around the world, you can actually make a case for more or less anyone who's in crisis. China, uh, in 2005, uh, they had 87,000 what were called major incidents, which means that there was some kind of a demonstration or something of the kind involving more than, I think, 200 people. Um, and about 5% of those were riots. That was 2005, and it was probably double that number. And there are problems in the USA... Good card? what is that? Is that my telephone I don't know.
0: know. That's Um, probably China.
1: Anyway. anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They've got fed up with this anti-Chinese propaganda already, Robert, you know.
1: (laughs) Wonderful place. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Wonderful place, wonderful
0: place. (laughs) Great people.
1: (laughs) Anyway, there's lots of crises throughout. Um, And actually, Europe has had lots of crises. If you think back to 1945, uh, uh, this is a continent swarming with, uh, with refugees. Uh, there are civil wars going on here and there. There are attempted communist takeovers in some European states. There are successful communist takeovers in other European states. Uh, and then you go through, if you're, if you're British, you go through uh, a series of, of crises, uh, post-war crises about... Shortages, um, uh, foreign policy crisis, uh, partition in India, uh, terrorism in Palestine. Um, uh, France has Algeria, Britain has Suez, and so on. It goes. It goes on and on. Um, uh, even the European Union, a, a fundamentally boring institution, has had has had crises. Um, It had empty chair crisis at the beginning when the French boycotted. Uh, It had budget crises when Britain uh, uh, got inside. It had energy crises. It had, had, uh, 20 years ago, um, uh, really a bad crisis in its inability to do anything about the wars in the Balkans. It had a crisis over German unification. So why is this crisis uh, different? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think you, you need to be careful about getting bored with this crisis uh, <laughs> particularly as you've now heard in a way two lectures on it one about 2008 and now about the impact of that on the European Union um, uh, uh, the main thing to s- understand is that it's not over yet uh, and the second thing to understand is that it is actually dangerous for Europe Um, It's dangerous for Europe because because the European Union is rather weak. uh, And I'll explain why later on. Um, uh, And this is about what does the European Union do? What's the European Union's kind of claim to exist? Well, one of the answers is that it has provided prosperity for Europe in the post-war period. Uh, And if, instead of providing prosperity... Uh, it provides uh, endless uh, austerity, endless zero growth and political instability, uh, then that will be a crisis, uh, and there is a possibility of collapse. What is, when I say it's not over, uh, what do I mean? The, um, uh, first of all, uh, Greece is not over. Uh, there's no doubt that Greek debt is unsustainable. Um, at some point or other, there's going to be a default. It probably won't be called a default, it'll be called a restructuring. There's been one already, but we'll have the second half of it soon. The, this time, um, uh, there will probably be less panic about the so-called restructuring, because most Greek debt is now no longer held by banks and individuals. So it's held by the European Stability Fund. Um, But the result of that will be there will be a uh, a real transfer of resources from, um, if you like, from the north to the south uh, because this is going to be paid for by the European countries in the Eurozone, the ones that can afford it. That is to say, Germany and the others. Um, And so it will not be an attractive event, but it's necessary. uh, And it will probably... And it will cause some trouble. Uh, But I think everybody's expecting it. So probably... will be managed quietly if possible Um, uh, uh, Portugal looks quite problematic Um, I don't think that the levels of Portuguese debt (coughs) are sustainable either politically or economically Um, uh, but that will take some time to to play out Um, the big questions but uh, Greece I think everybody is expecting Portugal I think everybody can live with Uh, the real questions are about Spain and Italy Um, uh, if you can't um, uh, all, all of these countries have had zero growth for a couple of years, Greece has had a decline of 25 percent in GNP since <coughs> the crisis started. It's falling another seven percent this year. Um, uh, Italy and Spain are not so bad, although in Spain, the levels of, of unemployment are really are really terrifying. Um, uh, but if they're going to get out of this? Uh, then they need to find growth from somewhere or other. Um, The theory in the currency union is that because you can't devalue, you solve the problem by uh, reducing wage levels um, to make yourself more competitive, um, by uh, 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 by taking advantage of that with investment. Um, uh, In order for that to work, uh, you need to have some kind of growth in Northern Europe, so that people can export there, um, and you also need, uh, you, but you also need to have reduced costs at home, and the wage costs are falling, but because the banking systems are so fragile, uh, the costs of borrowing are, if anything, rising. Uh, so the prospect looks looks extremely poor. Um, uh, there is not going to be any kind of major flow of funds from the north to the south. Uh, <coughs> So the real question is where is growth going to come from? Um, the, maybe it's just going to come. Um, uh, it looks even as though some might be coming in this country for no reason except that uh, what goes down must eventually come up. Maybe maybe that will begin somewhere in Europe. Um, uh, uh, the second is, the second important thing is the possibility of um, Strengthening the banking systems in these countries. Um, Because uh, across Europe, particularly in the south, uh, there has been a near collapse of the banks. Um, And the problem in countries like uh, Spain and Italy is that although um, they are more competitive in terms of wages, uh, they are now less competitive in terms of the cost of capital. Costs of borrowing have gone up, uh, and the ability to borrow has become more difficult. Some of the kind of regular supply chains uh, through which they made things, uh, imported stuff from, uh, from Germany, uh, processed it, exported it back to Germany, that's become more difficult because of the, um, the, the extremely nervous state of the banks. So uh, the two things to look for in uh, the course of the next 12 months are first of all, uh, is there going to be any growth uh, in those economies and in the north of Europe and, and secondly, is there going to be a serious attempt in the European Union at banking union uh, that's probably what is needed in order to, uh, to strengthen sentiment in the banks and to allow them to, to, have, to uh, uh, and allow them to function properly um, why is this uh, dangerous. Um, well, the answer I said is because the European institutions are weak. And what does that mean? Um, well, it means that um, uh, it means that people don't love them. There's no reason why anybody should love any institution, but um, people don't see. I mean, nobody loves the Ministry of Finance, for example. <laughs> if, uh, in any country and yet they still pay their taxes. Um, uh, but the European institutions don't have any obvious supporters. Um, uh, the, uh, the business community probably ought to support them uh, but most of the people actually don't know what they do and what they do isn't very visible. In the end people support their government because it provides things that they can see. Roads, um, uh, schools, hospitals, uh, those sort of things. Um, well, what does the European Union provide? The answer is it provides things that you can't see. Um, uh, it provides, I would say, but others now can to dispute this, I would say no war. Um, uh, uh, and then I would also say no queues of borders. Uh, a friend of mine actually deliberately um, took their uh, family on holiday uh, into the Balkans in Croatia so that they could all wait for two hours in a queue to cross the border because um, the children had never seen this before. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, this used to be the case uh, all across Europe uh, just as a matter of fact like wars used to be the case all across Europe at uh, some stage too. Um, uh, Uh, It also provides a thing which people can't see uh, and which they mostly dislike, which is lots of regulation. Um, (laughs) At least they dislike the regulation until the moment when um, the bank fails, although that's not regulated at a European level, um, uh, uh, until somebody dies of food poisoning, because that's a result of of European regulation. uh, so, you either complain about regulation because it 's imposing constraints on your ability to sell horse meat in hamburgers, <laughs> um, or you complain about regulation uh, because it 's stopping it 's not being effective in stopping people from selling horse meat in hamburgers uh, so regulation doesn 't really win you any friends, uh, although it 's essential if you want to have a, a well functioning market um, uh, and, it's rather, and the European Union is rather remote. It's, it's rather distant. People don't know who it is. Don't know what it does. Um, and uh, because the institutions of the European Union are actually pretty awful. I can tell you with authority because I worked in them. <laughs> um, people talk about the European Union as a bunch of unelected bureaucrats. Well, it's true. Um, Uh, it's generally the case with bureaucrats that they're unelected. Um, The the speciality in the European Union is that the Commission itself is not so much unelected bureaucrats as unelected politicians, which is in some ways even worse. Um, uh, Originally, the idea of the Commission was that it was going to provide a kind of collective leadership for Europe. Um, The Commission has... uh, it, it doesn't. It, in the end, is not the decision maker in Europe. Decision maker in Europe is the Council. That's the the member states together. The Commission, though, has used to have one very important power, um, which is the power of making the proposal. When the Council makes a decision, in practice, a law or a regulation or something, it has to be on the basis of proposal by the Commission. Um, uh, if you're British, you find this idea slightly strange. It's, a, it's actually, in the end, it's quite an important power. Um, I only discovered recently where it comes from historically. Do you know, Mick? No, no the no, power. No. It's, no. It was the power that the French monarchy had after the Restoration in 1815. <laughs> um, uh, and and it must be a French idea. <laughs> the, the, king, the king presided over the council. That any proposal for legislation had to come from the king. Well, this role is now played by um, uh, is now played by the commission. Um, uh, I guess, in a way, it does resemble Louis the Eighteenth, uh, enormous fat man. <laughs> um, uh, and, but there are twenty eight of them, um, and they are chosen at random here and there by people. Who, either because these jobs are very well paid, and people want them, or uh, because uh, somebody wants to get rid of somebody from their um, from their cabinet, um, or uh, something else. There is no very obvious coherence in the Commission. Um, when it began, um, it did provide some kind of, of intellectual leadership. Um, uh, personally, I think that this is now extraordinarily important Uh, and I think it's really vital the curious thing is that as a result of the euro crisis uh, the commission has got more power than it's ever had before um, uh, and yet it seems to have less authority Um, it's now got some really quite uh, extraordinary powers uh, potentially, uh, the power to look through uh, people's national budgets before they are passed by parliaments and tell them no, people in the Eurozone, countries in the Eurozone, and say, no, this is not acceptable. You're going to have to change that. Um, uh, so, actually, quite extraordinary powers. Um, uh, and yet, as I say, uh, it doesn't have authority. Um, so, I think uh, the collapse, by the way, is next year rather than this year. Um, but the the things you have to look for, not just in the economic symptoms, you have to look to see, do we make progress on banking union? Uh, is there any growth appearing? Um, uh, but a vital question in, um, in 1814 will be about who is chosen to lead the next commission. People always often complain about the commission, as I say, that it's unelected. Um, I think, personally, I'm actually quite in favour of electing it, but you can make a good case against that as well. But let's suppose <coughs> it continues unelected. Then, the body which claims... People say it's illegitimate. It's got too much power. It ought to be elected by somebody. But the counterexample for that is the European Parliament, uh, which is elected, um, uh, uh, which has a lot of power as well, much more than many national legislatures, um, Uh, but seems to me to have no democratic legitimacy at all. Being elected does not make you legitimate democratically. Uh, The European Parliament um, actually has got some admirable people uh, and it does a respectable job of reviewing legislation. Um, But out there, the people who vote for it don't know what it is, who represents them, what they do, why they're there, anything. They don't know anything about it at all. Um, and the only thing you hear from the European Parliament is that they are the only democratic legitimate body uh, and they should therefore have more power. Um, but they are, not, uh, uh, they are not democratic. Elections are not enough. Um, uh, it's a puzzle which um, political scientists should uh, one day give us the answer to. Um, the, um, the third body... Uh, is the body which does have um, democratic legitimacy, and that's the council. Um, that consists of the, the the member states, the 28 member states now. Um, uh, and yet, that doesn't, uh, it's very difficult to get a body to, to function with 28 uh, when you're in a crisis. Um, uh, in the past, when it's functioned well, it's functioned out of ...some kind of traditionally out of Franco-German leadership. Uh, Sometimes in the area of foreign policy, um, it's been British-French leadership. And that doesn't seem to work at the moment. I don't know why. Germany seems too strong. France almost seems absent, uh, if you, you look at the way the EU works at the moment. Britain seems to be standing somewhere near the door, wondering whether it really made a big mistake... (laughs) <laughs> uh, 40 years ago when he, when he joined, and that's not a very persuasive position to be in either. Um, uh, and that's why I say, uh, well, the, the two elections, that the, there are two things that matter next year in this area. One is the choice of the new commission. Actually, what we need is a commission um, with authority, with trust of the member states, Um, and with some kind of intellectual authority to deal with these very difficult and complicated questions. And the second second change of personnel is going to be in the European Parliament. And the trouble with the European Parliament is that um, because nobody knows what it does or what it's for, and because it doesn't seem to have any real direct impact on their life, either they don't vote or they quite frequently make a protest vote. Um, at the best, if they're really serious voters, then they go and vote on some kind of national issue, which is, is irrelevant in the European context. But quite likely, we'll find that um, people like the Five Star Movement, Beppe Grillo's uh, Italian uh, Internet Party, will do well. Um, the Front National in France is very likely to do well. Um, and in Britain, um, this I find the unattractive party UKIP uh, may do rather well, um, and we may finish with a European Parliament which actually demonstrates that it 's not a serious body by its by its membership um, so there we are so that's the, uh, so that 's the problem, and that 's the weakness but um I have this difficulty, and perhaps the other, the other real weakness is in this crisis. Supposing, supposing everybody wants the euro to survive, um, but uh, the euro is not going to... Uh, nobody wants it to fail, but first of all, if it fails, it won't be because of something that happens in Brussels. It will be because of something which happens in Lisbon or Madrid. It will be a some national event. There will be some national crisis. Um, an anti-Euro party will be elected, um, and the markets will go crazy, uh, or something like that. It will be something unexpected. Um, uh, but even worse than that, nobody knows exactly what failure would look like. Nobody knows um, how you would exit from the euro. When the when the euro first began, um, they had. I can't remember how many trucks full of euro banknotes um, uh, dropping them all over Europe. And the one thing you can be sure if the euro stops, if the euro somebody says, right, we're out of the euro, is that you're going to have a lot of trouble using parking meters because they're all designed for euro coins. <laughs> um, uh, it's very difficult to change a currency overnight actually the introduction of the euro notes and coins took uh, an enormous uh, uh, complicated semi-military operation Um, uh, if you decided to exit the euro um, you could not do that in secret Um, and once the markets think that it's going to happen then you've got your crisis Uh, and the real problem is that if somebody decides to do that secretly maybe they even get away with it but then If it's Greece, then uh, the markets will immediately go after Portugal, Spain, Italy. So, uh, all kinds of things could happen which nobody intends and which nobody expects. I I don't want that to happen um, because I can't think of uh, of how Europe could be organised other than the way that it's organised at the moment. Um, uh, if you want to know what the alternatives are uh, then think back 100 years Uh, 1913 um, uh, the the Germans have just increased the size of their military Uh, the French having noticed this have just introduced three years conscription Um, uh, the second Balkan war is now coming to an end actually the armistice was signed on uh, August the 10th, 1913. Um, the first Balkan War was all of the Balkan countries attacking Turkey and pushing them uh, back to where they are now. The second Balkan War was all of the Balkan countries fighting each other to see who was going to own the bits of land that they'd taken over. The second Balkan War was much more worse than the first. Uh, the second Balkan War strongly resembled what we saw in 1993, um, uh, villages burned, inhabitants massacred. The only difference was that in 1993 it was done with machine guns. Then it was done mostly with with bayonets and with rifle butts. Um, uh, if you if you think of the difference that the European Union makes, then you can think about the, these two Balkan wars. 1913. Uh, 20 years on from that, where were we? 1933. Well, you can work out where we were and what happened in between. 1993, 20 years on, where are we from that? The answer is that Croatia has just joined the European Union, slow and painful process, uh, but and I hope that it works, but uh, it looks okay. Um, uh, and earlier this year there was a deal actually brokered by the European Union between Serbia and Kosovo um, which will enable the European Union to begin negotiations with Serbia next year. Um, uh, so it's altogether a different Europe and the European Union is central to that. So if we lose it, we lose something which is really important. So I think I'll stop there. There's much more to say but uh, we'll say it <coughs> answering the question. Okay, well, thank you very much. I, I I I've deliberately
0: asked Bob Bob to be pretty brief, just to give you some thoughts, some suggestions, and some ideas, and I think he's done all of those. And I think uh, let me let me start the question, rolling, Bob, Um, bound to ask the question which everybody asks the question about Germany at the heart of all this: Is it that Germany is too powerful or that Germany is too weak? Uh, David Marsh in his recent book on, on Europe and the European crisis said there's a hole, there's a hole at the heart of Europe and that hole is spelt G-E-R-M-A-N-Y Germany, I think I spelled that correctly um, is, 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 is that at the heart of the question or is that only one aspect of the problem Germany is too strong economically but for a good series of good historical reasons which you alluded to at the very end there doesn't feel the capacity to, or the desire to lead whatever. Because you mentioned this issue of leadership, maybe we will start there and then open up for a Q and A quite quickly. Bob.
1: Yes, it's not. Uh, uh, it's not the German. It's not the German style. Um, uh, happily, um, uh, just after the war, the German football team had a big success, which represented kind of national revival. And mm. the coach was asked how was it you did this? And he said, it was the Führerprinzip. Oh my gosh, and yeah. I think he got fired immediately yeah, after that. No, I wonder why. Actually, uh, actually, be, Germany's been, I think, consistently the best governed country in Europe since the war. Um, but it's been governed on the whole uh, in a rather modest way by people who were extremely clever but uh, didn't make a big fuss about it. <laughs> um, and, and Angela Merkel, well, there were one or two, actually. Helmut Schmidt could be pretty arrogant. Never, yes. um, but um, uh, but Angela Merkel is, in a way, one of the cleverest, nicest, uh, most modest of them, uh, least wishing to take a prominent position and, and to lead. When... Uh, Germany and France have worked together well, that has actually worked quite well because France provided that extra touch of arrogance which Mm. the Germans (laughs) lacked. Yeah, you said it, it not me. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then just to add a final point, then France, which is in a sense part of the heart of this leadership, this kind of Franco-German, going back to De Gaulle and Adenauer in the 1960s, that critical moment of transition in Europe's history, post-war history, where is France in this? Because everybody, I mean Brits, used to complain enormously about the French. Now I find the Brits are kind of saying, where are the French? Yeah. Uh, so is, is there been a power shift between Germany and France? Or is it that France is now preoccupied by its own problems internally and makes it therefore less of an important partner? Or did, Is well, it that I Merkel it doesn't was, trust Hollande or what?
1: I mean, France just, I think the question you asked is, is the answer. Where is France? Yeah. Um, and I think a part of this is that France is in, is in deep economic trouble um, uh, and that uh, for France um, uh, managing the relationship with Germany over the euro has become more important than anything else and this is no longer the relationship of equals that it was mm. um, and um, uh, Hollande actually seems a decent uh, <laughs> professional uh, sort of person but he doesn't He doesn't make an impact. I don't know why. I don't know about the personality.
0: Okay. Well, I asked you a question about Germany. People even wishing for Sarkozy's return. Uh, Sarkozy's return, really? Okay. Okay. Well, that is incredible. Uh, I mean, I asked you. I asked you a question about Germany and France because I didn't want to ask you a question about Britain. So, Uh, (coughs) someone else. No, can somebody else? Okay. Let's open it up from the top or the bottom. Can we have the first question from below or the first question from above? Okay. The uh, the gentleman right in the middle here. Okay, pass it along quickly. Is there anybody down here who wants to ask a question? People up at the back. Yeah, I'll get this, I'll get this one. I like to kind of go up and down. I'll take two together. But try and make them brief if you could. Okay. Uh, and um, a question mark at the end of the sentence. My yeah.
1: name is Oliver Benzer. I'm from, from Bonn, Germany. yes. Uh-huh. Um, speaking about, with that background, speaking about uh, roles of the countries in Europe. Um, the European crisis has largely been a, a Euro crisis uh, in, the, in the last years. Uh, Britain is not a Euro country, obviously. And um, I want to ask, um, in how far do you see Britain's role at the moment? Um, does uh, Great Britain see uh, the crisis as a European crisis where it needs to weigh in to get over it? Or does it merely say it's a Euro crisis? We're we going to reject the Euro even more and that's all we're going to do. Um, or do you think there's a prospect of, of more influence by Britain?
0: Okay, that's one question on the Brits. Thanks. And there was another person over here. Yeah, please, if you could introduce yourself.
1: Yes, I'm Pablo from Spain. Very good. Thanks very much for your yes. words. I would like to ask if the UK left the EU, who do you think would be more harmed? The former or the latter? Or, in other words, who right. would be more benefited? Okay. I okay. So have
0: friends from Germany and Spain to ask the British okay. question. That's yeah. fantastic. Quite right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> on the, on, the, on the, the first of those, actually, I, I now go back a little bit and say something about the, the origins of the euro. I think that. Um, I, I think that Britain uh, played a bad role in the construction of the euro. Um, uh, I, I remember some phrase by Thatcher um, about, uh, I shall be um, up in heaven twanging my harp uh, before there's ever a European Central Bank. Thatcher simply <laughs> had nothing at all to do with it. Um, uh, and I think that, and therefore I think. Britain in a way shares some of the um, the guilt of the mistake that was made in the construction of the euro. Again, this is purely personal. I'm not an economist. If, the, if you ask me what's wrong with the euro, I think my answer is that it was an enlightenment project. Clever people sat down at a table and designed something and uh, were sure that it was going to work. Uh, I, I think that life is a bit more complicated than that and that one ought not to kind of do, make big decisions like that. I think one should do things gradually, organically. Um, Later on, and I think that if Britain had been committed to Europe and to the Euro, uh, I think it might have turned out a bit differently. We were more or less absent from the debate. Later on, when Thatcher was gone and John Major was here, um, he introduced an idea called the hard AQ. This has disappeared into the dustbin of history, unfortunately. But this was an attempt to create not a single currency, but a common currency. Mm. And the idea was that if you had had a common currency, which was actually going to be a very hard currency, it was called the hard AQ because it would always have been aligned with the strongest currency in Europe. So it would have been very attractive for people to hold their bank accounts in it. And it would have been usable as a means of payment throughout the, the whole of Europe. And you would have gradually found over a period of years that some countries, their currency would have been indistinguishable from the hard AQ. And well then, you could have, they could have gradually merged into it and dropped their national currency. That seems to me that it would have been a very sensible way to have proceeded, much better than the, the grand design uh, which suddenly, whoosh, we had it. Uh, and then now we don 't know how but to but do you down. think
0: Bob just to follow up yeah. on a question with my friend up there um, that now it looks like a massive piece of wonderful wisdom to have stayed outside the euro I oh, mean because well, that 's what the Brits are now saying schadenfreude, we told you so it's never worked yeah. haven 't we done well, blah blah blah, but britain 's been affected by this crisis yeah, it's been i, mean, I, I,
1: I don 't think that, uh, i don 't think that, that Britain, if you look at the way that sterling has Operated in the post war period, I think it would have been rather silly for Britain to have joined the euro. And the one thing that would have happened if Britain had joined the euro is we would have had a housing boom like we would never had before. And we've had some really <laughs> awful housing booms. Uh, it would have been Ireland, but on steroids. I mean, <laughs> I like interest that. rates in Britain were uh, systematically 2% below. Below European rates, So uh-huh. what would have happened? Everybody would have borrowed money and bought
0: houses. I'm turning to the over here: the U- U- UK and the but EU. I, I Are we going to get out? And if so, what will happen? Or won't we get out? It doesn't matter.
1: Well, um, uh, it's absolutely. I mean, if you ask really, what does the European Union do? Uh, the answer is: well, it mostly does regulation in order to make the market work. If the UK wants to sell stuff in Europe it's going to have to follow the regulation anyway so it's got a choice of um, being at the table when the regulations are made and it gives you a little bit of influence actually if you're British quite a lot of influence over the regulations or just accepting what regulations you get anyway you can't escape the regulation it's just a question of whether you want to help make it so actually it's a no-brainer who does it harm Britain absolutely clear yeah
0: And can you predict the results of the referendum?
1: Well, no, you can't. I mean, (laughs) uh, referenda are the work of the devil. Anybody (laughs) anybody who thinks that serious decisions should be made uh, this way, uh, it's completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Nobody in this country would dream of having a referendum on the death penalty. Because they know that we would make the wrong decision on it. Absolutely. So like it. Why they choose? And I think party. it was a
0: referendum in France and Holland that rejected the Lisbon Treaty, wasn't it? If I remember. Uh,
1: mm, yes, yes, and so. the Maastricht And the as yeah. well. I mean, but the, these these are ridiculous ways to uh, to yeah, make decisions. Yeah, I agree.
0: Okay, there was a, uh, people at the back there. Some a chap there at the back, yeah, please hand up and uh, then uh, bring the, and then pass the mic forward to the lady there. The, yeah, please, chap in red, and then, uh, yep, <coughs> go go. Please. Uh, thanks. So I have a question for you about the whole European Union. Do you think the problem is that the member countries are not willing to work in, like on their own or is it that they're not, they're not willing to work together on the problems? <laughs> okay, yeah. existential question that one yeah. I think. And, and then move the move the uh, mic forward and I'll take two together here yeah, in green. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm from Germany as well. I'm Viola. Thank you very much for your uh, lecture. Um, I'm if I may come back to the uh, German question, um, <laughs> if I yeah, yeah. call it like that, and I would like to ask you whether you think that the German leadership style as it is at the moment is sufficient or whether one should um, follow the Polish foreign minister and say whether one would... Um, yeah, because he German. said that he... Yes. Um, would rather see German activity than rather uh, German inactivity. Yeah. Okay. So you've got an existential question, number one, if I might put it like that, and a, a German question again, about the German question.
1: The, the existential question, oh, do, they, do people really want to work together? If
0: they can't work by themselves, why do they yeah. work together? And what are the advantages of working together? I mean,
1: together? It's, mm. it's, so I know, yeah. it's, that's not really a question about the euro, because with the euro there's no choice. Um, But if you ask that question about foreign policy, then you see the other kind of difficult contradiction in the European Union. Everybody knows that if you really want to make an impact in this world, the world of continents, China, India, Brazil, USA, you really want to make an impact, you're going to do it together. And yet every country has a foreign minister, and foreign ministers like getting their pictures in the paper uh, and they, you know, governments get elected by their foreign minister doing this I'm waiting to see what happens in Iran whether, although actually the European Union has been dealing with this problem, I have a nasty feeling we may get a succession of foreign ministers going to Tehran to, uh, right. to sort of negotiate, because that's kind of what they do, so, and in a way you can't blame them, it's what you do if you're in, if you're in the government, mm. uh, So, um, although there are things like this where it really makes sense to do them together, um, uh, there is no political force telling people that they have to. In fact, the political force, which is known as the electorate, is mostly telling them to do something else. Bob,
0: you worked on, just to bring another point in here quickly before we get back to the German question, I mean, you work quite a lot on developing or formulating a notion of a common foreign and security policy. You work with a great man, Xavier Solana, You've worked with, and you know Cathy Ashton quite well. From your inside knowledge, without revealing any secrets, we can reveal one or two, I don't mind. Um, Did you, from your own privileged position, inside position, feel constantly frustrated there should be a European common foreign policy, but it was almost impossible? Or or, or is it a better story to tell than that, do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a better story. I mean, actually, I I think the, I mentioned Kosovo. I think the Kosovo Mm. story. Is, is in a way rather it demonstrates how well the European Union can work remember of the 28 countries there are, there are five which don't actually recognize Kosovo um, but still Cathy Ashton managed to make a deal between Serbia and Kosovo which is in the end actually going to preserve the peace uh, because there was going to be violence in the north otherwise it's not a very interesting story and no one will ever know about it because there hasn't been a war mm. uh, um, Uh, I did this for a year before before I I, I left Brussels Um, and it was done with a very small team very unbureaucratic and what was good about the team was we all came from different places Um, uh, much better if you're dealing with that part of the world Um, I had in particular I had a Greek lady and an Italian an extremely good Dane who was very helpful to us uh, but people like the Greeks and the Italians understand the Balkans much better than <laughs> yes. people like the Brits do because they understand power in a different way, yeah. so <laughs> actually when it works, the ability to put people from different countries together uh, 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 can be very powerful yeah. Yeah. Um, so when it works, it can really do it can really be extremely good yeah. um, and then the German question again. Which aspect of the German? I think it was the, the Polish foreign minister's advice to ah, Germany be stronger.
0: Right. It's very strange to hear a poll saying that, but nonetheless, there you go. I mean, on the question, that on the the, on the question the of... The, uh, on the question
1: of the... On the question of the euro, I and mean, first of all, um, actually, I think Angela Merkel is head and shoulders above everybody else in, yeah, in yeah. Europe. Um, uh, the trouble is that um, we've got a single European currency but we don't have a single European economic theory because um, everyone in Germany seems to belong to the neoclassical school and, that's the budget, uh, and those of us in rather less reliable economies um, <laughs> seem to be Keynesians right. <laughs> um, and I think that we should have had a harmonization of economic theory before <laughs> we went into this um, uh, but uh, Uh, And the the trouble is that to solve this problem requires some very big steps indeed. Um, uh, And I can see why people don't want to take them. I can see why people in Germany don't want to give uh, financial handouts to people in uh, Italy and Spain. And I see why people in Italy and Spain would like to have handouts from Mm -hmm. Germany. Um, uh, But... um, uh, So I, I, I... I hope that we will get a little bit of growth. I hope that we will get a little bit of banking union. Actually, the more banking union, the better. Um, Personally, I would have Britain join the banking union too because you're much better off with a large banking union than a small one. And you're much better off with not national supervisors who are too soft on their banks, uh, but with tough international supervisors. So step by step in this direction.
0: Okay, thanks. But I've, got a, I've got a chap at the back there in, uh, in stripes, if I might describe you like that. The man in stripes. Yeah. Good evening, I'm Giorgio Faustini from Italy. Excellent. Um, before
1: you have been talking about bank regulations, uh, I would like to hear a point of view on the role of rating agencies within... Really? Mm-hmm the crisis or the collapse?
0: Uh, the role of the rating agencies. Yeah, right. well, so that's, that's a very that, That's easy. They're rubbish. They were yeah, yeah. They, rubbish.
1: I, I don't know where they came from. They, anyway, they who didn't they? do their job either. Um, are, I mean, met, the banking one? supervisors were all wrong. The rating agencies were wrong. The people who created the euro were wrong. All these things say to me, you should be very cautious about taking irrevocable steps. Yeah. Hence my preference for doing something... If we run back history, let's do Euro again and let's do it kind of slowly, organically, rather than with a big bang. Okay,
0: right, that's the end of the rating agencies. Can you just bring yes. it down to the front? There's a chap on the corner. And then anybody down here and I'll... Uh, yeah, yeah, quickly there. Um, Hi, yeah. I've
1: got a question about uh, Cyprus crisis uh, this summer, winter, um, winter, basically. Uh, uh, Cyprus tried to help uh, Greece uh, got in trouble Uh, they've got uh, big debt Uh, they couldn't uh, return it so they decided to take, well they not decided they were forced to take money from bank's accounts. so basically they freezed uh, The customers by yeah. accounts they yeah. money. stole their money how, yes, uh, yeah. how likely is this scenario going to happen again in let's say Spain yeah. Portugal yeah. Italy no. no it won't happen again it was a mistake uh, it was really a bad mistake uh, I'm sure it won't happen again I think everybody regrets it um, particularly those who their money particularly micked. the depositors <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, hey, I was a millionaire last I, week I, okay. uh, no I think that this was actually that, you think that was a genuine I think, was a yeah. I think it was a mistake I think it was a shame I think it was a scandal
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. okay we're moving down to the young lady in white please thank you yeah. we've got two or three questions to come I think yeah please okay I'm Lei from China and uh, since no one has talked about the Eastern Europe uh, when I have been there people there Although it's crisis time, but uh, a lot of people they want to abandon their own currency and change to the euro. And how do you think about this situation? Because it's very strange. Euro <laughs> <to> suffer, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> they still want to
1: abandon their own yeah. currency.
0: Yeah. People yeah. still want to join the euro. You mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah.
1: Well, I'll think about that. <laughs> the, the, these, these currencies are very small. Yeah. Um, it's nice. And. I mean, the Finns, for example, decided to join the, uh, the, the euro because at some point or other, some crazy in a bank somewhere decided, let's have a run on the Finnmark. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do if you're as small as, yes. as Finland. Um, and if you are Estonia, for example, um, uh, actually the Estonian economy is very flexible. They will do very well under any circumstances. Um, but you're much better off not putting your life in the hands of these uh, crazy kids in the banks. Um, So the euro may be bad, but um, uh, these small Eastern European countries are potentially a nightmare in the market. Do you think China will any time soon be joining the eurozone? (laughs) And, and, And please would you do so? No, actually, I, out Greece no, no I, I, I. No, no. <laughs> oh, be careful! Be careful. Ah, okay. Way, way back when the crisis was just beginning in 2008, uh, when it was just a Greek crisis, I was standing next to the Chinese ambassador in Brussels, and said to him, "You know, look, you've got a real interest in stability of the euro. Uh, you don't want to have turbulence in the markets and and Europe, big export market for you, get in trouble." Mm-hmm. It's very cheap. All you've got to do is to find some way of, of investing in Greece, and a couple of weeks later they bought Piraeus. Ah. So, um, <laughs> uh, so I actually think that China needs stability too. Oh,
0: it probably. certainly does. It certainly does. has a major, massively impact. Okay, we're going to take two very last quick questions because Robert. Has, uh, yeah. Okay. The, have we got yeah up there. Yeah, the lady. Yeah. yeah. Hi there.
1: Good evening, Professor Cooper. Um, well, there is one uh, thing that I really don 't understand, uh, according to official figures of the EU Commission, like since uh, the, um, since the euro crisis in late two thousand and nine, uh, every year uh, the trade between uh, the European Union with the United States, with uh, ASEAN, with China with the countries of BRICS is uh, increasing and there is like a huge amount of uh, investment yeah. from the United States in the EU. So my question is, where's the growth? Why there is no growth? Well,
0: what is the crisis if there's if What is the crisis if this foreign direct investment keeps going up and the trade's still going really up? How weak? How fundamental, therefore, is it a crisis, Bob? That's always the question I ask. It's still structurally a very powerful part of the world economy. You know, yeah. innovation, R and D, universities, technology. Right. You know, we right. talk down Europe, but I no. mean, the fundamental it's a, structural strengths are just huge. I
1: mean, it's the nicest place in the world. It's the <laughs> best. Anybody, uh, well, you, maybe you can have a look around yourself and yeah, see. Sure. But if you look around, you look around Tuscany. There's, there's this. This every village has got something which would be a national treasure anywhere mm. in the world. Mm. Um, Uh, No, this is a wonderful place to live. Um, The answer to the question is, um, uh, I I bet you'll find that a large amount of the uh, extra exports were coming from Germany in the north, um, and they were happening because the weakness of the euro has been quite good for the countries with strong manufacturing. Um, uh, So the crisis is kind of quite localized. In a national economy what would happen is there would be some flow of resources from the prosperous bit to the less prosperous bit that's more difficult to organize in in the european union yeah. so i think the answer is some bits of europe are doing extremely well and others are doing extremely badly check with the spanish friend yeah okay i'm going to take what well, i'm going to take <laughs>
0: Uh, okay, I need one more question. And uh, yeah, the man with the hand up, chat with the hand up. I've just asked two of my students to ask questions. That sounds like favoritism. Anyway, one of my students, please ask a question. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, good evening. Um, I'm Lin, I'm French, and thank you for your lecture. Um, I want to ask, earlier uh, you mentioned that um, uh, one of the problems with the EU was that the institutions we're weak. So, for example, you mentioned yeah. the problem of transparency yeah. and all that stuff. So, um, would you be in support of any institutional sh- changes? Yeah. And if
1: so, which ones? Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. We'll make that last question. Sorry. Wow.
1: Well, the answer is yes. I, I think that we really need to... Uh, uh, I, people are right when they say the commission is a bureaucratic nightmare. In some ways it is. The commission itself, the 28 people, it's too much. You cannot provide the kind of intellectual leadership, that's, which is really its job, with 28 people. Um, uh, but also the bit underneath it, all of the bureaucrats. So they are not as many as people say. Actually, this is pretty awful. Uh, very good people, very badly organized. Um, uh, so I think that uh, the European Parliament basically, I think, is a failure and needs to be completely reexamined if not abolished. Um, uh, we need some kind of democratic contact, but the european Parliament doesn 't provide it um, uh, so I actually think that we ought now slowly to begin reflecting about this because I think the thing is this is Europe is too valuable to let it go on in this uh, rather rather <coughs> messy unattractive ill organized way there 's an enormous Uh, project that needs to be done slowly and carefully and thought about.
0: Okay, on that uh, upward and uh, more optimistic note, uh, I'd like to bring the proceedings from this evening uh, to a conclusion. Thank you again for all of your great questions and I wonder if you can say thank you to Bob. There is, by the way, uh, a... were to themselves as a country, I thought that was yes. very good I am Spain, I am Italy, I am Germany we, got, we gave Germany two votes there too by the way and one from France, anyway thank you very much, there is now a reception upstairs uh, in the fifth floor and uh, thank you again thank, thank you, you.